Welcome to Challenge of the Decade. Challenge of the Decade is a podcast series by FMO, the Dutch Entrepreneurial Development Bank, now celebrating its 50th anniversary. And in this series, we'll be discussing the challenges that lie ahead and the actions that need to be taken to reach the UN Sustainable Development Goals in the coming 10 years. My name is Jonathan Gruber, and in this episode, we are talking about the climate crisis and how we can limit the global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, a number the United Nations stipulated in their Sustainable Development Goals. To be precise, SDG 13. So before I bring in the guests, let me tell you how things stand right now. It is no exaggeration to say that climate change is affecting every single person on the planet. The changes in weather and temperature are threatening our jobs, our ways of life, and even the security of our food. Rising sea levels and more intense coastal storms create challenges to any nation with communities living near the sea. In business terms, there isn't a single corporate value chain that isn't impacted by what's happening now and the changes that are just around the corner. That is if we don't change ourselves first. So how much do we need to change? The world is 304 billion tons of CO2 emissions away from raising the world's temperature by 1.5 degrees. There's a carbon clock on New York's Union Square that says the planet is just seven years away from a 1.5 degree increase. And we are well on our way to a terrifying two degrees. The higher we raise the world's temperature, the less suitable the Earth will be as a place for human life. It's really as simple as that. So how do we limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2030? Seems like a short time to make a big impact, right? After all, this means motivating governments, businesses, and individuals everyone really, to get on board the climate action train. Well, to help me answer these questions and many, many others, we have two guests. My first guest is Joram Schaben, who is the Director of Impact, as well as Environment, Social and Governance at FMO. Welcome, Joram. Thank you, Jonathan. And right next to him, actually directly across from him, is Marcel Beukerboom, the Climate Envoy of the Dutch Government. Welcome, Marcel. Thank you. And my first question is actually uh, is to you, Joram. Um, you have a really long title. What exactly do you do? That's quite right, Jonathan. So my department actually helps to maximize the impact that we create with our finance. So and we seek to minimize the environmental and social harm that our uh, development projects um, can do. We help uh, clients improve uh, their businesses with technical assistance. And uh, particularly relevant for today, we actually help uh, FMO set its climate strategies, as well as uh, structure the green finance deals that we do to help find, fight the climate change. All right. Well, we'll pick that apart later. And of course, uh, Marcel, you work for the Dutch Foreign Ministry. What does a climate envoy do? I've never heard that term before. Well, uh, I'm not unique in the world. I do have several colleagues, uh, including in, in the United States, until President Trump got elected, uh, but also several colleagues in other countries. And what an envoy does is, in very simple terms, I do represent my country internationally when we talk about climate. And that is at many places these days. And uh, to make the picture complete, um, when I'm not abroad, I do tell that story at home. Because if we, and you mentioned it in your introduction, the SDG 13 or um, the, the agreement that we signed in Paris in 2015 must have consequences nationally. So we have, we have entered a phase of implementation and I play a role in explaining what we agreed upon internationally uh, to people in the Netherlands, businesses, people, consumers, uh, governance, etc. Et so when the time comes to negotiate something having to do with the climate internationally, the Dutch government goes, time to send Marcel. Very often, yes. Okay. What I would like to do is to just uh, break down things. I mean, you heard in the introduction that the goal is to limit the planet's temperature increase to 1.5 from its projected 2 degrees Celsius, right? So my first question is, is to you, Marcel, which is who are the key players you talk to to get this kind of thing done? 
Well, first of all, governments. When I travel and I go to international meetings, uh, it's, for example, in the UN. The UN is an intergovernmental organization, so that is where uh, countries are represented by uh, people like me, and we talk government to government. But as I said as well, uh, now we have entered a phase uh, of implementation. Uh, Governments do not have the, the capacity to do it alone, so you do need other players, you do need other stakeholders. And uh, you can find those in business, so in, in, in the private sector, including the financial sector. Uh, but there's a big role for lower governments and ultimately also for us consumers. Okay. And also, I mean, um, we were talking about business as well, right? Are those the kinds of people you speak to? I, I do, yes. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. You, you spoke now about govern, governments, you briefly touched on consumers, and how much time do you spend speaking to business? Well, it's, it's d- difficult to quantify, um, but, but to give you just one example, um, I'm also a member of the Dutch Platform for Sustainable Finance. That is a platform in which the Dutch financial sector unites to, um, to first of all, talk about what we can do in the Netherlands uh, to make financial flows more sustainable and their impact bigger when it comes to uh, uh, greening their their businesses, Uh, but also what they can do abroad. How can actually uh, the impact of the Dutch financial sector be uh, increased? And uh, I'm sitting at a table with them to to discuss that and to actually make sure that they do that within the the parameters of the uh, the Paris Agreement. And and of course, they all do it, right? Immediately, the second you turn up. Well, uh, (laughs) yeah, you hear me hesitating. Um, I'm very pleased with the fact that they do sit at the same table and that they are indeed motivated to do so and then we enter into practice and that is something that that Yorim can uh, probably attest to is is uh, it's often difficult you know we are operating within a system that we built over almost a decade uh, sorry almost a century and um, uh, if you start to change that system from within it often goes slowly um, and if you look at it from a little bit of a, of a distance you actually have to conclude that we should get rid of the system altogether. Um, But that is almost impossible when you're in it. So you are looking at an incremental change. And um, yeah, so so, so the intention is there. But um, can you give me an example of like uh, a time that you sat down with a business and it kind of did work? You're like, oh, you know what? Maybe this is happening. Well, again, from that same platform, um, we realize that we are talking about the uh, the, the climate problem, so as, as you introduced it, um, but you could also argue that there, there's even a bigger problem looming, and that is uh, the loss of biodiversity. So um, several of those financial institutions sent out uh, experts from their own organization and said, we, we are going to look into this. What does it actually mean for us if we have to uh, take the loss of biodiversity into account as well? What kind of financial flows, what kind of investments uh, should we no longer do? How could we change the direction of our investments in such a way that we actually help uh, protect biodiversity or even uh, have an impact in terms of increasing it? Yeah, funny, that reminds me of, a, of an interaction I had with, with my five-year-old son at the time when I was about to see Marcel uh, at the COP in Poland. And uh, I wanted to explain what I was going to do there. So I told him I'm going to go to the COP and uh, I'm talking about fighting climate change. So my son goes, uh, oh, well, you have to uh, tell them to stop the hunters. I'm like, well, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's that's right because this is a climate conference, right? Yeah, that's so about taking carbon <laughs> out of the air. Uh, no, no, really, you have to tell them to stop the hunters. He says. So I'm like, uh, okay. So but why, why the hunters on the climate conference? Well, you know, they shoot the birds, and the birds they eat the seeds from the trees, and then they poop, and they, and the new tree grows, and then they take carbon out of the air. So you need to tell them to stop the hunters. <laughs> so Marshall's quite right. There's a real interaction between climate change and uh, and biodiversity, and my son surprised me on that. Yeah, was he right? Was your son? I mean, like, is that a real point? Was he making like as a valid issue? Well, there's a valid valid interaction between climate change and biodiversity for sure. Right. Okay. That's that's kind of great. You also talked about governments. You speak to governments around the world. What's the kind of thing that you, uh, shall we say, encourage them to get going with immediately? Um, 
Five years ago, in 2015, we signed the Paris Agreement. And uh, already back then, we realized that what we had submitted to the UN as, as uh, national uh, climate plans, uh, if we would add all that together, it would not be enough to get us on the course to the two degrees, let alone the one and a half degrees. It, it would end up more or less around three degrees above pre-industrial levels. That is the terms that we use. Um, so we knew that in five years' time, and actually we signed for that, uh, we had to increase our ambition. So that is now, five years after Paris. 2020 was supposed to be the year in which all nations had to submit uh, increased or updated climate plans. Um, and how are we doing? Well, that, that's where I'm getting to. Um, that is um, actually it's on its way, but very slowly. So um, n- definitely, uh, not all countries have submitted those new plans. So many actually uh, report a delay because of Corona. Um, you could argue that some of them use this situation to actually take a little bit more time. Um, and then the number of countries doing that is increasing. So we are, I think we appro- will approach around 100 at the end of this year, um, but not all major emitters. And that is, of course, where the, the biggest difficulty is. Uh, it's, it's the members of the G20 or it's the members of the OECD that are uh, mostly responsible for the situation we are in. And that is where we have to look for increased ambition. And that is my job. And that was my job this year to uh, convince those countries that they have to do more. Uh, We do that collectively in the EU as well. So at the end of this year, hopefully we will raise the bar for ourselves and and get to a level of 55% uh, CO2 reduction in 2030, which is... is, much higher than the current 40. So we are willing to step up and uh, we we try to use that as an example to others for them to step up their game as well. How do your friends, because you work for a bank, how do your friends at banks react when they hear you say things like the world can't go higher than 1.5 degrees? Do they say, uh, absolutely, we'll get right on that, Joram? Well, that's a good question, Jonathan. Um, I think as as Marcel was was alluding to, uh, they're still kind of figuring out what does it even mean for us. So uh, banks, financial institutions, business in general, they like to make sense of these kind of problems through figures and understanding, right? What's the impact on us? Now, if you try to visualize the the problem that they're looking at, you can think about, say, a car, right? That's driving uh, down down a bumpy road towards a cliff edge. And, um, and, and, and the cliff edge is around two degrees, just beyond that. If you, if you go beyond that, you can't put the car in reverse anymore because you get all these natural feedback effects like the permafrost melting um, and you get runaway climate change. And we're not talking two degrees, we're talking four to six degrees at that point. So businesses and, and, and banks in particular, they want to make sense of that problem. So they want to have a really good dashboard in their car, right? Now, that dashboard, um, you've, you've heard them talk a lot about reducing their emissions, GHG avoidance. That's really only talking about reducing speed, right? The speed at which we're driving off that cliff. Um, what they also need to look at is they need to have a real speedometer, which is how much are they emitting and how much are their portfolios emitting? But then speed is not actually that relevant if you don't know the distance. Right now, you mentioned the distance because for the whole world, that's the 304 billion tons of CO2 that we still have left for one and a half degrees. So you need to put all of these things together. And then they're looking also at warning lights, right? You need some warning lights on your dashboard. So um, is my site going to flood? Or, you know, are the crops of my uh, my, my clients going to fail? That We call that physical risk. And another warning light that they're looking at is, is more regulatory type risk, um, you know, Am I that diesel car that's not allowed to go into town anymore, right? We call that transition risk. So what we're seeing happening is, is yes, they're very interested to uh, align with Paris and contribute to uh, to a one and a half degree world. And, and at the moment, they're making sense of it by building really good dashboards. And then we see them gradually adjust strategies, just like FMO has done, right? So we've set an ambition to, um, to stick to one and a half degrees. And now we're adjusting our strategy and actually building out uh, concrete actions to align our portfolio with that. But, you know, I'm not surprised to hear that FMO is aligning their portfolio with one and a half degrees because that's kind of the nature of, of the bank that you work for. What about the other banks? I'm sure that you go to meetings with other banks. You have lots of colleagues in more commercial banks, in merchant banks. Are they getting the message? Absolutely. 
Really? And can you give me an example? Surprise me. I mean, there's a lot of big banks out there who one would expect them to, to not be thinking in these terms. Surprise me about a big bank, one I've heard of, that's really getting on board with the idea. There's a big banks, Jonathan. We've got ING, who committed to uh, aligning with Paris. And we've got ABN AMRO, who put sustainability center stage of their strategy. So you've got two nice examples here in the Netherlands um, that we've been working together with on the initiative that Mar Marcel has been talking about. So the Carbon Accounting Initiative and the Biodiversity Accounting Initiative, which are Triodos and ASN. And then, of course, we've got a lot of banks that FMO is working with in our portfolio um, that we are supplying green finance to, to actually help them green their economies. A uh, very nice example is actually uh, a Maria bank in um, Armenia, where we're working together with them to, uh, to create a real flywheel, if you will, for green finance. So what we're doing there, we gave them first two green financing lines, and now we're looking to actually innovate and uh, create a green bond. Um, there, that would be the very first green bond in Armenia, and it would allow them ultimately to actually issue these green bonds on the local stock markets to, uh, to actually attract additional capital for green finance in Armenia. So it's quite exciting. So we see in, in that area, a lot of banks are uh, coming on board. This is very exciting, but of course, there's a lot more that needs to happen if you're going to meet this goal of 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius. I mean, a lot, a lot more, because we really just have 10 years. Well, not even 10 years now, right? Nine and a half years to, to meet this goal, to make sure that we don't go over the cliff that you were just talking about, Jordan. So, Marcel, um, what exactly is it that, for example, governments have to do? What are the kinds of things that governments should be working on right now to meet the goal. You know, I like Yorim's example or, or analogy with the uh, with the dashboard. Um, and uh, several warning lights are indeed blinking, but some of them are not yet blinking. And one of those warning lights is uh, consumer behavior. Um, but if you are uh, an experienced driver in Yorim's car, you can predict that that will start blinking. You see the sentiment in uh, societies changing. So there will be... Uh, more demands for green products, for sustainable services and things like that. So that is a, that is one of the warning lights that I hope will start blinking soon. Uh, at Can least you give I'm, me an example of the kind of thing you're talking about? Well, actually, if you look at the, uh, the climate problems at the moment, um, the biggest underlying problem actually is consumerism. So that is all those ships going across the globe um, with, with plastics from uh, cheap labor countries that... Uh, Um, uh, actually have just one single use. Um, one of the solutions is that we get to a circular economy in which we reuse those valuable resources. But um, uh, the first step should actually be not to buy them. So change the way that we consume. Um, make those value change shorter and uh, in the end circular. So that is one of the, 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 the lights that will start blinking, hopefully. Uh, I do see, and, and that is not only me, that is also pollsters that, that tell us that, that um, uh, the opinions within a society are slowly changing into that direction. And actually COVID-19 has accelerated that. People do realize what the impact of our behavior on, on our ecosystem is. So that is, I think, um, uh, one example. And the I mean, other... Should, are there other things they could be doing? Like, I don't know, regulation or taxation? Like, what are the kinds of things that they could be yeah. legislating, for example? That, that is one of the other lights on the dashboard. Um, and uh, many of the drivers in, in the car would only start uh, reacting if the light starts blinking. Um, so they actually only react when a government or uh, a regulator says, okay, you can't do this anymore. You have to, to stop this particular behavior. Such as? Um, investing in operations that are responsible for deforestation, for example, um, or uh, polluting uh, value chains. Um, and what I can predict is that uh, governments uh, in, in a few years' time will start legislating uh, behavior with the, the extreme use of fossil fuels, for example. We, we already see that in, in the use of black coal. Um, 
it's not uh, that strong yet, but there is a, a tendency towards stricter re- uh, regulation in that field. Um, Meaning they're going to say, you can't use this coal. It's We're going to make using black coal yeah, very expensive and, 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 that is and having uh, solar panels on your house very cheap. That would be... Um, the end game, so that will be the ultimate uh, consequence but currently we are entering a phase in which um, the polluter starts to pay increasingly, so so the the, the the price of pollution is going up and sometimes that is regulated like in the EU with the emission trading system uh, sometimes it is because there is a tax on uh, products that make use of um, the fossil fuels for example, or, or black coal uh, or that have a higher emission Um, But we also see, and that is the other side of that same uh, warning light on our dashboard, that a regulator like the one in the Netherlands, the Dutch Central Bank, tells financial institutions, down the line, your investments in fossil fuels will uh, become stranded assets just because of all the reasons that we just explained. What's a stranded asset? A stranded asset is something that will not um, get the end of its financial lifetime. So a banker, but Jorim can explain that much better than I can. That is Jorim, what's a stranded asset? Sorry. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that, that's exactly that, uh, that warning light that I was talking about, about transition risk. So essentially regulation changes and suddenly you can't take your diesel car in, in the center of town anymore. Ah. Similarly, uh, you have invested in a coal plant and the government says close it now right and you've got a stranded asset it, you're stuck with it but it, it can't produce income anymore no return on investment that's basically what it is right that's the problem right. you'll make a big investment but you won't get the, any money out of it in the end which of course means it's not an investment at all it's exactly. a liability yeah right There so if, if you look to the, the near future and we are talking about the next decade here um, if you are uh, a CEO or an investor you can already see what's going to happen so we you can predict that uh, the price of, um, inf- of, of investments in ecosystem uh, destructing um, assets will go up. So, so the, the polluter will start to pay much more than he currently does. So if, if, the, if that is the kind of foresight that you have and you look at your dashboard and the lights are not yet blinking, you can predict that in a year or two years time they will start blinking. So is, better is this change the kind of like sticks that you carry around? You carry around carrots and sticks as a diplomat, right? Yeah. So are these the kinds of carrots and sticks that you have when, you, when you're going off to another country? The Netherlands is a, is a small country, but it has a lot of money to invest, right? Um, and you'll say, well, the Netherlands would maybe like to invest in your country, but if you're going to build a coal plant, uh, you won't see any of our... Of our money. I do, actually. And um, I have a good example here. Um, I went to Mexico last year to actually have this conversation with the, uh, with the Mexicans. And uh, I spoke to um, a big conglomerate in concrete in cement. You, you know, cement and, and, and concrete are uh, uh, highly polluting uh, resources. I did not know that. Well, they, they have a very large carbon footprint. So oh. so if we really want to um, uh, be carbon neutral in 2050, we should get rid of the current production methods of, um, of, CO, of, of cement and concrete. Um, and he said, I have an, a global um, uh, organization. I have plans in Asia, in Latin America, and in Europe. And I take the European standard as it is and as I predict how it will be in several years and I implement that in my whole uh, organization. So my plans in Asia and Latin America are already up to the same standards as you have guys in Europe because that's an important market for me. So that's an interesting one. I see similar um, developments when it is about the um, um, carbon border adjustment tax. That is a very difficult concept but in a way it is um, the outside border borders of the EU, we put a levy on products that have a higher carbon footprint and that want to enter the European market. It's not there yet, but we are discussing it, and others uh, outside the EU are anticipating this regulation already. And that is the kind of tool that I take out of my toolbox when I travel, and I say, look, this this is what might happen, so you rather get your act together and get to European standards that are currently the standards or that might become the standards. So, Joram, I'd like to to ask you now, we are trying to get people to change their habits, their ways of working, their whole perspective on being more green. I mean, this is literally both of your, your everyday jobs. I mean, how 
do you or how does one persuade people to change course? Right. That's an excellent question. And, and you can take it from the how do you change consumers? I will focus a little bit on how do you change people inside businesses, right? To change their behavior and then drive the, the behavior of a business. And, yeah. and It turns and out that inside businesses, people work there. Exactly. <laughs> um, so if we look at how we do that, say, within FMO, right? So it's our job as, a, as an impact and ESG department to really push that boundary, right? And what we do is we first look at good ideas in the research. And then we see, where, can we push for an adjustment in the strategy? Of the, of the institution or improvements in products. A nice example there uh, would be we know, right, that we can buy time with nature-based uh, solutions such as forestry or innovative agriculture. If you look at the Krauter Lab in Switzerland, um, they've actually looked at where can we do more forestry and they found there's like 900 million hectares of land that's not used. That's like the size of the United States available globally uh, to actually do forestry, um, which would take about 200 billion tons out of the air. Um, that's four to five years Be- worth. Because plants absorb carbon. Exactly. Um, now, so we looked at that and we said, okay, uh, where's that potential? It's in Russia, Canada, but also, for example, in Brazil. So then FMO changed its course and actually reopened for business in Brazil to see if we can actually do more forestry-type transactions there and innovative agricultural transactions. Another example is a client that we actually financed, uh, Comasa, who play exactly with this idea. So we financed them together with the Dutch government, actually, and Marcel. Um, and what they do, they actually work with smallholder farmers who, uh, who have unused land and they say well uh, why don't we help you plant a few trees that can function as your pension and that way they actually help them uh, achieve an income but also these trees then sequester carbon uh, they store carbon in the tree and they've now already financed uh, 25,000 farmers where they've actually been uh, planting these trees over time so it's, it's a really cool idea uh, that plays on this idea of using unused land for forestry Now, Joram, I don't want to minimize all the things that you've just said because they all sound wonderful. They really do. But, the, but of course, a huge amount of people need to change the way that the things that they're doing right now. So I'm going to throw this open to both of you. Um, what has to happen to persuade people to change their ways right now? Well, who goes first? Yeah, I'm not surprised there's a bit of a hesitation because it, it is the question of our day, isn't it? It really is. Really getting people to change their behavior. And, and maybe there is an, an, uh, a nice analogy with the current crisis we're in. It's a health crisis and it's uh, directly threatening to, uh, to people's personal life. And for one reason or the other, uh, collectively and globally, we were able to change the way we work, we live, um, because of this direct threat to our uh, own well-being. You could argue that the, uh, the climate crisis is a bigger threat, although it's not being felt like that. So in a direct answer to your question, what should happen? Perhaps a few more disasters. We are, <laughs> really? yeah. we are already seeing it across the globe, the, the, the forest fires in California, uh, the melting of, of the, the polar ice caps. Um, it's, it, it's ongoing and uh, we, we see climate changing before our eyes. Also in the Netherlands with droughts uh, that, that for three years in a row. So it is having an effect on, uh, on our agriculture. It's having an effect on uh, our food systems. Um, and, and that is a kind of a crisis that people will keep on seeing right in front of them. And uh, I'm convinced that this will lead to that change that we need. Sounds like what you're saying is what might be most persuasive for people is a nice good dose of fear. That people might need to be scared into changing how they I, behave. I think it's it's very difficult to say that. Um, you have the three types of people in psychology. Um, you have people that run away from danger. You have people that freeze from danger. And you have people that fight it. And those that are willing to fight it um, are already up in arms, many of them. Um, there is uh, quite a big number of people in any country, in any society that is kind of frozen. And you 
you see people running away from it, actually not really knowing what to do. And um, it is, I think, the tasks of, of institutions like FMO of, or of governments to not only change their own course, but also explain why we are doing that and uh, bring others along and, and enlarge that group, group of people that actually want to join in the fight. If you have more disasters, if people really see what's in it for them, then they might find this, of course, motivating. But it is a bit of a strange idea to sort of hope that there's enough disasters that people finally get the message before 2030. Um, it's a monumental struggle. I mean, would you guys agree with that? I'm not overstating it. No, you're nodding your heads. No, you're not overstating it, Jonathan. So the question is, is this challenge not too big to solve in just one decade, Yoram? Well, it's a big challenge for sure. Um, now, that said, I think the technology is largely there, right? Solar power is already cheaper than fossil power in about two-thirds of the world. Uh, we're seeing that large companies are starting to get on board. So Microsoft has actually committed to go carbon negative uh, by the end of this decade in, in 2030. What does that actually mean, carbon negative? So carbon negative means that with your own production, you're somehow managing to take carbon out of the air, right? So that's ah, pretty exciting. Okay. Yes. Okay. So rather than adding carbon or not even being carbon neutral, which we exactly. so often hear about, uh, I take an airplane and I buy, I pay f some money to have a couple of trees planted or something like that to make my flight neutral. You're saying, no, we're going to actually take carbon out of the air. We're going to build businesses that actually benefit the climate. That's quite right. And you're saying Microsoft has actually done this? They've committed to do that by the end of the decade. <laughs> Uh, and what does that mean specifically a commitment to do that like how do you do that well that's a good question and, and for some businesses that will be very hard if you're a cement factory right but for example for uh, an, an agricultural company that may well be possible there's now uh, interesting innovation going on to adjust crops that uh, to help them store carbon into the soil so there's interesting uh, possibilities coming up to actually start storing carbon in uh, in soils to uh, store it in trees a nice example there is uh, is FMO also wants to reverse the car with our portfolio and, and we've financed uh, Miro, which is a forestry company in West Africa, um, who are also doing a uh, electricity pole business. So the effect of that is you first grow the tree and then you put down an electricity pole that stores the carbon for even longer. So basically the idea for them is if, if they've um, uh, deployed our finance and achieved their growth plans, that they will be sequestering about a million tons of carbon uh, every year. That's uh, similar to the population of Maastricht. Now, how important is it actually to be carbon negative, to stay at this 1.5 degrees by 2030, Marcel? Well, that's what we have agreed on in uh, in Paris, uh, and uh, more or less to be be climate neutral or carbon neutral in uh, in 2050. And uh, it's scientists that tell us that um, we have to do that. Uh, and and in in recent reports, also explaining what the negative effects will be if we don't do that. And those can be found in the things that we have already mentioned, like uh, extreme weather events, uh, the, the, the the rise of sea levels, but there's one other element here um, that is also um, negatively impacted, and that is the, the current uh, gap between the haves and have-nots uh, globally. So the rich countries that are currently responsible for global warming, because we in, in, in developed countries emit the most and have historically emitted almost all carbon into the atmosphere, uh, and those countries that are poor uh, and are currently finding and experiencing the, uh, the negative effects of all those events much more than we do so that that social side of it i think we should look into as well uh, because just stopping and become uh, carbon neutral will not be enough there is a distribution problem underneath and what about being carbon negative we have to be carbon negative in order to meet the 1.5 by 2030 or not i mean is it going to be even possible to stay at 1.5 without being carbon negative well, Yoram already said something about the uh, what we call runaway climate change. And even if we would stop today, um, the, the current pathway leads to um, more warming in, in the decade to come. So uh, we will 
if we keep on going like we do, and even if we manage to be uh, carbon neutral in uh, in 2030, still see some uh, negative effects afterwards. And scientists are not exactly sure what taking carbon out of the air means. Could you actually reverse climate change? Um, that is still open, and, and there are different scenarios uh, telling us what, what could possibly happen. Right. Nick, if you look actually at the almost all of the climate scenarios, right, they show we're going climate neutral by 2050 to achieve one and a half degrees. But after that, we must go negative. So essentially what we're saying is that most of the carbon that we will be putting into the air after today will have to be taken out to stay on the one and a half degree pathway. So really what, what we're saying is we're shifting from a uh, reduce emissions type of thinking to a waste disposal problem type of thinking. A waste disposal yes. type of problem, what does that mean? So basically uh, we are putting waste into the air, waste you must clean up. So you have to take it out one way or another. Okay. That's a, that's a very different way of thinking, isn't yes. it? I mean, it's a given that we will pollute. I think everybody kind of have become strangely comfortable with the idea that to grow, you must pollute. And what you're saying is this is an actual, and I hate using this term, but it really fits here, paradigm shift in the way that we have to think about pollution in the future. You have to think, be aware of all the pollution that you put into the atmosphere and you have to come up with policies that will absolutely at some point not just neutralize that pollution but take it out of the atmosphere altogether. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I hesitate a little bit. Um, oh. Nature is is uh, a very beautiful creature and um, uh, or a beautiful system. It is operating at a balance. It's it's the circle of life. It's an equilibrium. And um, uh, what we try to get back to is an equilibrium that uh, sustains. Um, what we have been doing over the past couple of, of uh, decades, over the past hundred years, is take out carbon of the Uh, the ground, uh, our fossil fuels, that was carbon that was put in there millions of years ago, and we have put that in the atmosphere. That is the kind of uh, knock that the ecosystem got and that it brought off balance. So if we are able to restore that balance, hopefully within that carbon budget that we mentioned before, then it should be okay. Um, But getting to a system that takes out carbon might affect the equilibrium in a different way um, because we want to restore the balance. Uh, and, and, and that's why I kind of get against the, the term uh, pollution when we talk about uh, CO2. CO2 is a necessary element in that equilibrium. So if we get to a system that consistently gets it out, we might get into a different problem. So I'm, I'm looking for the balance. What I would like to move on to is, and actually, is uh, Marcel, you actually brought this up, is that when you go to developing countries, um, you pointed out that most of the carbon that's currently out of the ground and in the atmosphere was something that we here in the developed world did. We did that ourselves. And then, of course, we go to developing countries and we say to them, uh, all those fossil fuels that you have in your ground, uh, don't put them into the atmosphere. And, of course, they should probably turn around and say things like, well, you burned all the carbon you wanted and got rich. We're still developing. It's unfair to ask us to do what you couldn't or wouldn't do yourselves. You hypocrites. So I guess the question is, how do you both save the climate and reduce inequality at the same time? Jordan. Sure. So I think we have an inequality issue uh, for sure, uh, Jonathan. If you look at the recent Oxfam report that came out, and they said that basically the top 1% richest consumers emit double the bottom 50%. So that's not very fair. If you look at heat maps right, of emissions per capita, you'll see the Northern Hemisphere very red. If you look at heat maps of the climate change impact, you'll see the Southern Hemisphere very red. So basically the people that contributed least to the problem will suffer most from it. That's not very fair. If we talk you know, to clients, I was speaking to a client uh, of FMO and I said, look, we've decided not to finance coal anymore and uh, heavy fuel, for fuel oil plants. And they say, well, well, we need to grow our energy. We need to feed people. We have a right to grow and we need economic opportunity. And isn't the Netherlands still using coal? <laughs> Right? And it's 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 a challenge. It's a fair challenge. They do need to grow, right? And we know that economic opportunity will require more energy, and we need to find ways to reduce it. So, 
to answer your question, I think there are three parts to uh, to actually fighting climate change and fighting uh, inequality at the same time. So the first part is that the richer countries will need to decarbonize faster to make space for the poorer countries' development. And we do need to lead by example, for example, on coal. Um, the second part, I think, is that the developing countries have an opportunity to leapfrog. Yeah, so if you look, certain technologies are already very cheap. I mentioned solar. They're also actually very fast. You can build a solar plant in less than a year, and that actually also helps development. Plus, they have an interest to actually de- decarbonize themselves because they will suffer most from the emissions. So it's in their own interest to de- decarbonize as well as we did. The third part, I think, is financial support. Right. So the fairness does mean that I think the rich countries must uh, support the developing countries in actually financing that transition. And obviously, climate finance from uh, developing banks like FMO can help. I think we also need direct support from governments uh, and probably that support needs to go above and beyond the 100 billion that was already committed in Paris. Right. Marcel, you're an actual diplomat. You speak with actual members of other governments. Do they ever say things to you like that? Like, how can you ask us to reduce our climate footprint when you guys are wasting all over the place and you've been wasteful for the better part of 150 years? No, your your question is, do they ever ask that? They ever actually bring that up all the time because it is such a a prominent problem. Um, And... We have acknowledged this uh, in in several international agreements. So so the the, the conventions in in Rio, uh, the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement, they acknowledge that we should have different speeds of uh, decarbonizing. So uh, developing countries do get more time to get there. Jorim already mentioned the financial support. That was also written in those agreements. Uh, Rich countries, uh, developed countries uh, said we will put money on the table to help you uh, build up an economy that is having a lower carbon footprint than than we have. Uh, And we will help you build up capacity to actually uh, get there. So those are the the elements in international agreements that deal with this issue. Uh, But at the same time, it's not enough. The the way our global system is designed has many more elements that actually uh, sustain this uh, inequality. Can I ask you a weird question? Do you, when they say this to you, do you have to react with a certain amount of humility like yeah you're right and it isn't fair there is nevertheless a- you know that kind of talk yeah yes that talk is there um uh, but of course from the perspective of developing countries it's it's not enough um i can say yes we put the money where our mouth is uh, but it's not enough so uh the mentioned the 100 billion that is an agreement that we made in uh, in copenhagen already uh, 10 years ago uh, and we we uh, committed to start financing this from this year on 2020 well we haven't put that money on the table yet Uh, One part of that explanation is because the U.S. said, well, we won't join you with that anymore. We do not live up to that commitment. But uh, in in the broader picture, uh, it's just a small figure if you look at all the investments that need to take place. So uh, more needs to be done to actually regain the trust that we have lost over the years. So they keep on putting this on the table and they have all the rights. So humility suits me in those meetings. Right. Yeah. and, And how do you feel? when they say that that they are right yeah yeah and uh, so I go back to uh, to my capital and I go back to Brussels and, uh, and and not only me, many of my colleagues and saying, okay, we have to do more. Um, we have to, to find ways how we actually get rid of these um, uh, inequalities. Uh, but then other interests are thrown on the table. It's the interest of, um, of big corporations. It's the interest of consumers, ultimately of voters. So that is where you get into. And what do you mean the voters? Ultimately, the decisions are not taken by uh, civil servants like me. Uh, It is politicians, and politicians are uh, the elected followers, I sometimes say. So they see and they feel what's going on in society. Um, And currently, it is often the short-term interests that um, get the upper hand. So they feel, well, if I I need to be re-elected at the next elections, uh, I better serve some of those interests. And I I, I put it in a very general uh, way because it's it's very hard to pinpoint what are those um, uh, interests. But for the, the individual voter, it's often the energy bill at the end of the month, for example. 
Yeah, which means that you can feel as guilty as you like, Marcel, when, you, when you're speaking with your colleagues from developing countries. And you can say, you're right, and uh, we should definitely change our ways too, and I'm going to go speak about this with my government. And you speak about with them, and then the politician says to you, yeah, you're absolutely right, we should definitely change our ways, and uh, I'm going to put that policy position forward until the moment comes when they don't put that policy position forward because they feel they will lose an election. I'm explaining how it works. I'm not necessarily saying it's good or bad. This is how it works. And and we can um, stay closer to home because within the European Union, we we try to get to more climate ambition as well. And then I just look at uh, the colleagues in Poland, for example. And uh, when I talk to them directly, they say, yes, indeed, we we have signed the Paris Agreement. Uh, Actually, Poland has organized three climate summits already, more than any other country. So they are committed to uh, to the cause. But then when they look at their own domestic situation, they see, okay, most uh, people in Poland actually heat their homes with their own coal-fired plants. That's what it is. They have uh, coal uh, heaters at home. Uh, some even their former pe- socialist country, they never developed an oil-based economy. They yeah. work, work with, with so, brown so, coal, so which is a very polluting kind of coal, right? Any yeah. politician in Poland knows that if I, I start to touch that, and sometimes for from, from many people that have worked in the, uh, in the mines, uh, their pension is being paid partly by black coal. So they, they partly get money and partly get coal. So you are touching people's livelihoods. And that is uh, a very difficult uh, not to untangle for for Polish politicians. And they bring that to Brussels. Sounds very frustrating, Marcel. Yeah, because we all know, and I'm, I'm reading the scientific reports at the same time, and I know there is urgency, we have to speed up. And then I see these kinds of realities, and I, I, I notice, well, this, this is the, the, the very hard reality that we have to deal with. Yeah, I mean, this is a political problem, it's a cultural problem, it's a personal problem. I mean, when you, when, when you get told by your Polish colleagues that this is the situation, how do you deal with that? If you could tell me just very quickly, how, what do you say? Um, I say we should see how we can help. Uh, so that's, uh, I have to say that, that that's uh, the, the positive part of it. Uh, in Brussels, we are looking into uh, the redirection of European funding that could actually help speed up the Polish transition. Like giving them money in order to uh, use different kinds of fuel, maybe solar, maybe wind, in order to heat their homes. Is that the kind of thing you mean? Yeah, and, and, and that is happening. I mean, in several Polish cities, uh, public transportation is, is completely electrified, for example. So those are the kinds of developments that take place at the same time. It's just the speed at which it happens. So here is the, here's kind of some big questions to throw at you. Um, If there is one thing that I have gotten out of our discussion on today's show, gentlemen, is that you both have really hard jobs um, because it's a struggle to cajole, convince, arm twist, persuade governments, businesses, banks and consumers to do the right thing to, and this is not an understatement, save the world. Um, What keeps you going, Joram? For me, it's my kids. I owe it to their future, and I really don't want to drive them off the cliff. Um, It's also actually the entrepreneurs that I've met over the years at FMO, and they are in the most climate-vulnerable countries. Uh, We've seen in this COVID pandemic how an external disaster can end a business that has stood for generations. So we must solve this CO2 problem and save their life's work and the livelihoods that they support with their businesses. Yeah, and why does that matter to you so much, helping them? I deeply care about uh, solving the, the world problems, and I've met these people personally. I know what they've invested in their business. I know that typically every job that they support supports another 10 families. So I think we, we owe it to them. We owe it to them. Yeah, do you, do you mean like we owe it to them because of the things that we discussed earlier today that we kind of created the problem and therefore we owe it to them to, to help them? Is that what you mean? Or I think there's a fairness a, fair, a fairness question underneath for sure, yeah. And what about you, Marcel? And what keeps you going? Um, uh, the, the positive examples. Uh, we've spoken a lot about things that do not go that well, um, but we could also spend an hour talking about those things that are actually happening, uh, whether it's the financial sector, whether it's the private sector, whether it is uh, citizen initiatives. Um, and it's a natural process, and I often tell that to people that are 
rather new to to this world, it's natural to go through some kind of valley of despair. The more you know about this and the more reports you read, the more depressed you get. But then you you get into action mode and you see what is actually going on and how many people are indeed putting their energy in in, uh, sustaining our livelihoods and and in creating uh, new ideas and and innovating to get to to a a carbon neutral future. Can you give me one example of a story where you think, yes, these people are doing it right? I can give you many stories, and it, it, it's about um, just local initiatives. How so can just we? Just give me one. Just give me one story. The introduction of um, uh, electric cars, the share model, just a, a, a cooperation of local people that do share one car that is uh, no output, no carbon emissions, um, and it brings them together. Uh, they, they create a sense of community. It motivates them to uh, to actually contribute to a greener future. So and, and you can find them all over the place. And when you see people doing something like that, how does it make you feel? Positive. Because I see people that care, that, that look at their own role. What can I do in my own neighborhood uh, with my own money and my own behavior? And um, the moment people start projects like that, um, it starts expanding. They also question their own uh, diet and they start buying different products. And they think, oh, should I indeed go on a, on a third holiday to Ibiza this year? No, probably not. I can walk in Drenthe. You know, those are the kinds of, of uh, changes that do occur in people's lives, and um, it's contagious. Well, that's actually my next question. That, that is, that is, and my final question for this show, which really is, I want you guys to imagine the people who are listening to this program. They're in their cars, uh, maybe an electric car. They're on their way to work. Uh, they're at home doing the ironing or cooking. That's how most people listen to podcasts. They're usually doing something else. Uh, imagine these individual people with their headphones on, what I would like you to do right now is just to speak directly to them and tell them the one thing that they can do today to stop the world from heating up more than 1.5 degrees by 2030. And let's start with you, Jonim. Right. I'll give you a few. Be carbon conscious in your consumption. Invest sustainably. Buy carbon offsets so we can create a market for taking that carbon out of the air. And above all, I think you should join the rallying cry and tell politicians to do what it takes. Meaning, what, what does it mean, join the rallying cry? Give me, a, give me an example of the kind of thing somebody could do when they mean join. Because it's one thing to say on Facebook, uh, yes, I did something carbon neutral. It's another thing to actually get up and do something. So what's the one thing they should do? Nice example. I um, I actually started a um, lifetime compensation challenge last year. What, what's where, that? Where, where where I compensated my uh, my flights, not for the flights I took, but all the flights I took in my life. Oh wow! So you mean you like itemized all the flights you've ever taken in your life? Exactly. And you started to pay them off, as it were. That's quite right. Okay, that's a very interesting example and an innovative one. I I would have never have even thought of that. I know you, Marcel. What's the one thing somebody can do? today to start working towards a 1.5 degree world. I repeat Yorim a little bit, um, and I say two things. One is be a responsible consumer, so consume less. We are used to buy products and use them once, and I'm not talking about food, I'm talking about electronics and other things. Um, Make sure, maybe you can repair them, maybe you can share them, maybe you don't need them because there are alternatives. Those are the kinds of questions that you can ask always, um, and that actually helps uh, to, uh, to, to lower your your footprint and that is what we ultimately need to do get to a circular kind of economy and then if you allow me jonathan the other thing i repeat your him um translate this kind of thinking also in uh, in the ballot box when you start voting next year in uh, in march that's the Dutch election That's here the Dutch in, March, election yeah. date. in March. Anyway, that was our show. Jordan Schaven, who is the director of Impact as well as Environment, Social and Governance at FMO. And Marcel Bokeboom is the climate envoy of the Dutch government. Gentlemen, thank you.
You're welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. This is a new podcast, and we are dying to know what you made of it. You can do this by rating us and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. And you saw this coming, right? Don't forget to subscribe. You can hear The Challenge of the Decade on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on our website, future-minded.fmo.nl, future-minded.fmo.nl. This has been Challenge of the Decade. My name is Jonathan Gruber. Have a challenging week. <laughs>